Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. Today, we are continuing our discussion with Clay Waterman from the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. He is the intake attorney and he manages the screening process and intake for the project by reviewing requests coming in from incarcerated individuals in Pennsylvania. It's been with the project for about a year and a half, having practiced law in New York. Um, we talked about many things, Clay. Welcome back so much to the podcast. I appreciate that. Thanks um, for having me back. You're welcome. We talked about many different topics uh, in our last um, podcast, and I wondered if you could maybe review um, some of the factors that contribute to a wrongful conviction to uh, just kind of update our listeners, because I'm sure you come across them all the time. Sure. Yeah. So um, some of the main contributing factors that we co come across are mistaken uh, eyewitnesses who, you know, claim that they saw someone commit this crime who ac didn't actually commit this crime, um, ineffective assistance of counsel. You know, it's, it's not always that the attorneys for these individuals are bad attorneys, but a lot are overburdened. You know, if they're a court-appointed attorney, which a lot are because we're dealing with um, not so wealthy individuals for the most part who are convicted of these crimes, these court-appointed attorneys are paid a very small amount per hour, which forces them to take on a number of cases um, and they're just overburdened, can't dedicate the time to investigating the cases in the way that they should be. Um, so we see this ineffective assistance of counsel coming up more often than we'd like to. Um, we see incentivized witnesses, you know, witnesses who um, are given shorter sentences on their own uh, convictions or they're given monetary incentives to testify against someone else. Um, and then something that we run into time and time again is official misconduct, whether on the police, the detectives, the prosecution, uh, you name it. Um, <clears throat> and we see this in major forms and minor forms in almost all cases, whether it's uh, a poor or sloppy investigation, whether they're coercive to witnesses. You know, sometimes you read a case and a witness to a crime who had nothing to do with the crime in any way is somehow um, taken in, interrogated for 14 hours, handcuffed to a table, um, and then they make a statement and are let go, even though they had nothing to do with the crime. So they just kind of give the detectives the information that they want, whether it's true or not. Um, they can be coercive to the actual defendant, um, potentially not turning over material information to the defense side, um, kind of you name it. And we, we see it all over and over again. <clears throat> um, and finally we see, um, poor forensics and, you know, what's known as junk science. And we see that a lot, um, particularly recently in arson cases, we've had a number of arson cases that we've had overturned, which we have resulted in exonerations, um, because the fire science is constantly changing. So for instance, <clears throat> one of the individuals that uh, we had helped 
to achieve an exoneration was convicted back in 1993 based on a huge fire that took place in Pittsburgh where three residents died. It was a six alarm fire and the fourth was injured. Um, the actually the ATF. So the, the federal government got involved um, and it was declared an arson, not an accidental fire. Um, years and years later, there were more investigations done. Uh, more experts came in and the science behind arson investigations changed. Um, almost all of the theories presented by the ATF were completely discredited. The investigation was flawed. It was found to be wholly unreliable and the fire was declared to be accidental in nature, resulting in um, Dan Carnevale being released in 2020. So those are some of the factors that we deal with. What about um, false confessions? You didn't mention that. Is that a factor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I left that one out. Um, we we come across that a lot as well. Um, it's sometimes hard for people to grasp that anyone would falsely confess to a crime that they didn't commit. But a lot of times you're dealing with individuals who are underage, who don't know the law, um, who have, you know, mental deficiencies or incapacities, or even just your normal everyday people who are presented with a situation where it seems to them that the best thing to do is to confess. So if they're being interrogated for hours and hours told, you know, we have 10 people placing you at the scene. Um, just, just tell us you were the getaway driver and we'll let you go. And so then they end up telling the police that they're the getaway driver and they end up in jail for 20 years for second degree murder or something along those lines. And once you say it, it's it, once it's presented to the jury, it's almost impossible to get around. So it's very unfortunate. And I think often um, maybe some of the most vulnerable people are young people, teenagers, say, um, who are just um, overwhelmed by the uh, fatigue of the long interrogation, uh, the pressure and they cave. Uh, do, do you do you deal with um, uh, very young uh, offenders? You know who uh, have been uh, convicted of a crime and and they maintain their innocence. Do you you know what part of your clientele are very young, say juveniles? Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're not juveniles now, but right, right. Oh, that's true. Right. right. So at the time they were arrested, a lot of the individuals were juveniles, um, you know, not super young usually, but around the, the 15 to 17 year old range. And uh, we do see a lot of what we think are false confessions from people at around that age. And that's the case, whether there was a, a parent present or not. Um, in some of these cases, um, back in 2016 and then in 2018 there were supreme a supreme court decision which said that you can't um sentence a juvenile to life in prison without parole um it, without these extenuating circumstances that i won't get into um so there's been a lot of juvenile life or resentencings since 2018 in particular um and so we we still deal with those cases you know people may be coming up on the end of their sentence, but they're still going to be on parole for the rest of their lives. Um, and they were juveniles at the time that the 
crime was committed. Um, but in particular, as you said, a lot of these cases involve what we deem to be false confessions. And one of the things contributing to this is that detectives in the U.S. are trained to elicit a confession. They're not trained to find out the truth. It's, it's really an antagonistic system where it's get the confession, get the conviction at all costs, and not necessarily find out exactly what happened. So instead of open-ended questions, it's lie to the individual, make them feel like they have no choice but to say that they did this crime, make them feel, you know, as you see in typical movies, you have the good cop, bad cop situation where they're standing over the individuals, tell us what you did, that sort of situation. <clears throat> where the individual feels claustrophobic, they feel I have to get out of here at all costs. Um, and, you know, that leads them to say, hey, I did something so that they can just get out of that room. And then, yeah. as you said, particularly younger individuals are more susceptible to this sort of coercion. Yeah. Um, you you referenced uh, the changing in the laws uh, just for listeners who may have missed my podcast, I interviewed Marsha Levick, who started the Juvenile Law Center back in 1975, a couple months ago, and Abdullah Latif, who was uh, a young person who spent 31 years in prison. Um, so that was a phenomenal program. And of course, we need to do much more wherein young kids are concerned. So we talked about um, the letters that you get from uh, people who are reaching out to you for help, um, how people find you, you mentioned word of mouth, um, and that every single letter you get is answered one way or the other. Um, how, uh, once your team decides to take a case, um, what exactly happens? I think we did talk about the four stage process, but maybe just um, uh, quickly go over what happens when the case is accepted. Sure. So once we agree that a, a case should move forward and we should represent the individual, um, we first have to put together what we call a case review committee, which is generally comprised of former prosecutors. Um, and possibly former defense attorneys as well, or current defense attorneys. Um, and what we do is we present the case to this unbiased panel, because sometimes, you know, in, in the work that we do, we can even get caught up in a case and think this person's innocent. And uh, we need that outside perspective to kind of poke holes in the case. So we present the case to this committee, and they're actually the ones who decide whether or not we can take on the individual's representation. And then we'll generally ask the case review committee for specific um, things that we can take on in the representation. So it might be that we're just asking to present a case to the convictions integrity unit. In that case, we're asking the convictions integrity unit generally of Philadelphia, because that's the, the most comprehensive convictions integrity unit in Pennsylvania to either send us the homicide file so that we can see if there are Brady violations where the prosecutors or police withheld exculpatory evidence, or to actually take on the case um, if, if the CIU believes that the individual's innocent as well, they can work with us on the case. 
Other cases might be we're just asking to make an application for the state to test um, certain evidence for DNA. Um, others might be full on representation. You know, we believe this person's innocent. We want to make a petition immediately to the court and represent this individual the whole way through, whether it's in a post conviction motion, whether it's a new trial, if we obtain one, um, whatever comes along. So those are really some of the avenues that we go down once we agree to representation. And a question that I get all the time, and I bet you probably do too, is why does it take so long to overturn a case when maybe you have all that you need in terms of documentation? Why does it take so long? Sure. I mean, it takes so long for so many reasons. Um, you know, the, the four stage process that I laid out last episode takes a long time on our end to start with. But once the, the case is in the judicial system, uh, these especially state judicial systems are notoriously slow. For one thing, I, I don't think they want to overturn their own decisions in the past, but uh, whether it's in civil law and criminal law, whatever it may be, it's just notoriously slow. And these are very complex cases. So you might submit a PCRA, which is the Post-Conviction Relief Act in Pennsylvania in say 2017, you, um, the, the district attorney or the prosecutor asks for a continuance, you know, you're submitting motion papers and amending things and new things are coming to light. That may take a couple of years. Then you finally get the judge to make a decision on that. There may be an appeal. There may be hearings. It's just, it's, it's a slow process. It's extremely unfortunate as there are innocent people sitting in prison as this all goes on, but it's, you know, what, what we're dealing with. Um, it's, it's one of those things that if you think about it in the broader picture, there, there's not a lobby necessarily on behalf of poor convicted individuals. There's no money advocating on their behalf. You know, you have these small nonprofit organizations like the Innocence Project um, or, you know, these smaller individual groups who are advocating on behalf of innocent individuals, but you're going against much bigger, uh, more powerful um, opposition in, you know, groups of prosecutors, police, um, the jail systems in general, the entire criminal justice system. So it's, you know, it's kind of a David and Goliath situation, <laughs> and uh, we're, we're definitely not the Goliath. Right. That's the truth. Um, are there, you mentioned a couple things I want to follow up on. Are there other projects in the state of Pennsylvania that do what you do? So there are some other burgeoning organizations um, that haven't been around for too long that are kind of doing what we do. They're definitely looking into innocence cases. Um, it's yet to be seen how effective they are and um, whether they're implementing the same sort of, you know, stage process that we're implementing. Um, it's, it's a difficult situation because a lot of people want to help, but the laws are very complex and 
particularly the PCRA law in Pennsylvania is draconian in that if, if you come up with new evidence, but don't present it in the right way within a year of when that evidence shows up, you're basically time barred from ever bringing up anything involving that situation ever again. <clears throat> so, you know, if others are focused on media attention or something along those lines, it can be, it can hurt, it can also help. Um, so mm -hmm. there are some kind of burgeoning organizations. And then the other thing that I, I've touched on already is the, the CIU, so the Conviction Integrity Units throughout the state. Um, you know, the Philadelphia Conviction Integrity Unit that I've discussed has exonerated, I believe, 21 people since mid-2017. So they're mm -hmm. working with great efficiency. They have <clears throat> a lot... <laughs> They have a lot more power than we have, and they also have a lot more information than we have. Um, but what they're doing is amazing, and you know we're we're working with them on a number of cases, and they're they're doing great work in line with what we're doing as well. They can also take on cases that aren't necessarily just innocence cases, so they can take on you know cases where the um, penalty is much too harsh or where the detectives or former prosecutors involved did something wrong, but the individual is not necessarily innocent, whereas we can take those cases on. Um, and I think there are four total CIU units in Pennsylvania at this point. There's one in Center County, <clears throat> there's a statewide CIU, there's Philadelphia, and then there's also Chester County. And the others aren't as developed as Philadelphia, but it's, it's positive that more and more are showing up. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, you have been in operation since 2009. Is that accurate? Yep. Yep. And you have exonerated, is it 20? It's 20. Men, men and women. So I wanted to give Correct. people a sense of that. Now, um, you work pro bono, all of you, for all clients. Is that correct? Yep. Exactly. We don't we don't take any money from any clients. Any so time. so so that means that you don't get a salary. <laughs> no. I'm oh kidding. no. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Not so much where, of one, but <laughs> where where does the money come from for uh, specifically for innocence projects? And there there are seventy uh, approximately around the world in the United States. Where does the money come from if you work for free for your clients? Sure. It, it comes from a wide variety of sources. And, you know, a lot of our staff is dedicated to fundraising, but it comes from federal and state grants. Um, but it mostly comes from individual and uh, business donations that we are able to garner. Um, we hold annual events, um, both for our Philadelphia donors and Eastern Pennsylvania um, individuals who are involved in our organization and for the Western side as well. We actually have an event coming up in October. I encourage anyone who's listening to check out our website at painnocence.org and uh, tune in and you don't have to donate. Um, you can if you'd like to. It's going to focus mostly on um, police and prosecutor accountability. Um, but we, you know, we gather funds from these events from people, people who volunteer with us tend to donate a lot. So if a, 
a big law firm is volunteering a lot and working on a lot of these cases. They know what we do. They know our dedication and the importance of our work. So they'll, they'll donate as well. But really, it's uh, subsisting on the generosity of others for the most part. Right. People who feel that this is important to uh, keep the funding going so, so that people in prison um, who certainly don't have the funds to pay a, a private lawyer can access your, your help. Um, there, I want to just kind of do a two-part uh, talk where we're getting close to uh, the end of our time together. Um, there was a case uh, that was overturned in 2019. It was Chester Holman III, uh, his case, um, and he was arrested in 1991. And what is amazing about this case um, from 1991 to 2019 he was in prison 28 years um, i'm always just overwhelmed by the amount of years that people are locked up when they have maintained their innocence right from the start and there was police misconduct uh lying of eyewitnesses, the prosecutors violated the Brady rule, which you talked about turning over the exculpatory evidence, uh, a recantation of key witnesses, and on and on. Now, as a result of that, um, Pennsylvania doesn't have a compensation law, um, but he, he was awarded quite a bit of money. Can you just talk a little bit about um, the idea of compensation and if there's been any progress in the state to compensate victims of, uh, uh, you know, a miscarriage of justice like this? Sure, sure. And yep, Chester Holman is now on our board. And I will just oh. add, yeah, yeah, he's he's great. And I will just add that um, the Innocence Files on Netflix, the seventh episode is the Chester Holman episode. So oh, it's a whole episode right. dedicated to this case. But oh, yeah, thank it's, you. it's a mistaken identity. It involves all those factors that you just discussed. And, you know, I think one major factor in this case was that it was a young University of Pennsylvania student who was killed and Mr. Holman being you know, a black individual was someone that they could kind of easily pin this on that extremely unfortunate. Um, and like you said, a lot of prosecutorial and police misconduct and Brady violations and coerced identifications, just you name it, it was all involved in this case and um, just a terrible miscarriage of justice. But going back to your question, um, so Pennsylvania is one of, I believe, 14 states now that doesn't have any compensation for or exonerated individuals. So when they're getting out of prison, they have nothing, essentially, not a penny to their names, no help. Um, even individuals who are out on parole or some other form of incarceration that ends that's not resulting in exoneration, there is some help provided to them but there's nothing for exonerated individuals. Although we do now offer, um, you know, help with individuals who get out of prison after years and years. And I believe you're talking to my colleague, Mal, who will 
enlighten yes. you much more on this subject. But we have been working with um, a number of groups and a number of state representatives to try to get a compensation bill passed in the state of Pennsylvania. The governor is on our side. Um, and there was actually a line item in the governor's last budget proposal for compensation for exonerated individuals, but nothing has been passed to date. Um, again, I, I don't think it's a, a big ticket item for politicians because it, you know, it's, it's not going to garner too many votes, but those politicians who do, you know, push this forward. Um, I, if any are listening, we, we love your work and encourage everyone to keep doing so. It's, um, just something that it's a very difficult situation at the moment, um, with what happened with COVID, with budget deficits, that sort of thing. But we're we're working, we're pushing. Good. I, I don't know what's going to come of it or when something's going to come of it, but well, don't we give have up. some hope. Yeah. Right, right. Don't give up. Well, we are out of time. I wanted to invite people to listen uh, next time. Just what you said, um, your re-entry specialist will be my guest for two podcasts. And... Um, uh, I appreciate your time today, Clay, for enlightening us about your work and what you do for the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. So um, thank you again for your time. And uh, please join us next time for Pursuing Justice. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You're welcome.